Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing on a Monday? Yeah? I think I can hear you say it's okay, right? Mondays are cool. Just depends how your day goes, but Mondays can be cool. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. And we also have affiliates in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Oregon. I'm sorry, I just said in Hawaii. I'm sorry, Hawaii. I get lost. I get lost. Anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Um, the topic tonight, Dr. Bruce Goldberg is our guest, and it's an interesting topic. It's a topic I've been trying to get on my show for the last 15 years, and uh, it's, it's because it's, dear, it's near and dear to my heart. My father um, served in the U.S. Coast Guard during World War II, and he had some stories to tell. He was in a bar with, some, with a bunch of sailors, and he heard a rumor about a ship that disappeared from its dock and appeared somewhere else. And he had heard rumors directly from sailors who claimed they were involved in the experiment. And he always told the story. He said he believed every word they said. And he, he even, before, you know, before all these crazy books were coming out about the subject, he even told me that, and I must've been like four or five years old, you know, I used to watch creature features anyway when I was a kid. So it didn't matter what they told me. And, he told me that some of these sailors, when they reappeared, they were stuck in between the bulkheads. You know, and it was very impressionable for me as a kid. You know, I was really impressed as a kid. And I remember trying to find books and do research. You know, when I got to the age where I could actually read, I was reading these books at nine, ten years old, you know, trying to trying to take it all in and figure it out. But I'm really excited tonight to talk to Dr. Goldberg about this. Um, because you can't, it's, it's hard to find people that, will, that talk about it now because a lot of these, these men, the World War II guys, they passed away. So, you know, it, it, it's just hard to find people to talk to this about. So I'm really excited. So without further ado, I'm going to bring him on and get the show started. And then we're going to be probably be talking about some other things too. And it's going to be fairly interesting tonight. Okay, here we go. Good evening, sir. Good evening. I am excited to have you on the show. Well, I'm excited to meet you. I've never worked with you before, and uh, this is going to be like Charlotte's Web. Tonight. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Tell me about you, sir. Well, I am, uh, and maybe very well known to your audience, I do a lot of regular interviews with George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM and Gaia TV. Uh, I have um, been in this field for 49 years. I am a retired dentist. I have a master's in counseling psychology. I've written 21 books. You can see my past lives, future lives to the, my right. Um, I've written 21 books, which are published in 21 languages, documenting everything from time travel, reincarnation, out-of-body experiences, parallel universes, psychic self-defense, everything to do with metaphysics you can imagine. Uh, and uh, I've devoted my life to this. And to me, um, this is a lot of fun. My second book, The Search for Grace, was made into a TV movie by CBS. It was a documented case of reincarnation that was documented by the network, not by me. I gave them some of the initial uh, facts came out during the sessions, but they spent three weeks in Buffalo, New York, shuffling off the Buffalo to document the case. I was a consultant with the writer, the teleplay writer for the film, uh, and was interviewed on the news after the movie, uh, up close and personal. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, so this is my life. This is, uh, this is what I do. And uh, I like to educate people. I'm a professional speaker uh, as well. I uh, give talks around the world. Uh, I've even been to India, Bangalore specifically, to give workshops on uh, the book that you see in my background. Uh, so that's what I do. I'm, I am, uh, you might say that um, uh, I, uh, as a retired dentist, I now drill into future lives is the way I like to look upon myself. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I was looking at uh, 
the titles on your books and everything on Amazon, you have a very wide array of subjects. Yes. Well, I covered the field, the field of metaphysics. Uh, uh, for example, even when I wrote my third book, Soul Healing, it's not just about my work. Yes, my work deals with energy healing and removing the cause of issues. I never prescribe drugs. I get people off of medication. But half that book deals with all the other disciplines, uh, mm -hmm. shamanic healing, Reiki healing, meditation, healing through quantum physics, interesting enough, religion healing. Uh, so I deal with other things. So I try to um, uh, give a, uh, you might say, a spectrum to the uh, audience out there and let them choose what they want to choose. I, obviously, my work is one thing, but I like to educate people into all aspects. So I'm known as a uh, avid debater and educator in the field. Well, you know what I find interesting about you is that it's hard to get a scientist, you know, somebody that's in science, to look at these other parts of the field. Yes. Well, in the beginning of my career, you can imagine my, my career started, uh, I was a, a Dale student in Baltimore, Maryland, University of Maryland. And after a graduation, I had a residency and came back to Baltimore. So you have to understand in the old days, in the 80s, uh, actually 70s, late 70s, um, the media, the reason why they had me on the air and why they showed me some degree of respect, with all due respect to the mainstream media, you don't always win that game in metaphysics, okay? Oh. I can handle myself. I'm a New York Scorpio, so I'm not worried about them, okay? But um, the reason why they gave me the credibility and why they treated me well was because of my dental degree. I'm a doctor. I have an other advanced degree in counseling psychology. So the problem is a lot of people in the field don't have the education, at least the ones that support the metaphysics. So if you're just, look, I'm not trying to make fun of people, but if you just barely got out of high school and you do a lot of reading and you become well-versed in the field, that's fine. And I encourage that. But the mm -hmm. media will respect you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, my question is, how did you, uh, well, obviously, you, you know, you study all this stuff, but the Philadelphia experiment, I mean, there have, I mean, there have been books about it, but it's kind of sparse to find stuff out there, especially now. It's kind of disappearing now from everybody's memory. Well, the Philadelphia experiment, which we will discuss, deals yeah. with my work in many ways. Number one, I'm obviously an expert and deal with time travel all the time. Mm -hmm. Past life regression, future life progression. When people go out of the body, they're in the fifth dimension. By the way, you're technically known as an ultra terrestrial when you do that. Uh, and you do that when you sleep, by the way, your dreams are out of body experiences. So I deal with the uh, time travel routinely. Now, mm -hmm. teleportation, uh, one of my books is called Time Travels from Our Future. Mm -hmm. The second book beyond that, after that, was the e Egypt book, uh, An Extraterrestrial and Time Travel Experiment. So I am, with all due modesty, the world's foremost authority on time travelers because I don't know anybody else who deals with real time travelers. That isn't high, you know? I mean, right. so, um, so this is my work. So time travelers deals with teleportation. So teleportation, different than out-of-body experience, because you actually physically move when you teleport. And the USS Eldridge in the Project Rainbow was teleported, not only 250 miles away to Norfolk, Virginia, on August 12, 1943, but it was also teleported forward in time to the 36th century. Okay? So we got time travel and teleportation. Yeah, we'll go into the time thing. Don't worry. We'll get to that. Um, so uh, what we're talking about here is teleportation and time travel, mm -hmm. which, as they say in the world of New Yorkies, right up my alley. I've never heard about the about um, the, the uh, years that you're talking about. That, that we'll go into that. No, we're let, let me explain, let me just give you an overview of what we're going to do. We're okay, okay, go ahead. Talk about the details of the technology behind the Philadelphia experiment. Sure, sure. We're going to talk about my old. Uh, I would say, I would like to say my old friend, I never met him, but Nikola Tesla, and he was the reason behind the Philadelphia experiment. We're going to talk about how the USS Eldridge traveled through time into the future, and I will give dates, specific dates okay. to uh, okay. correlate that. We're going to talk about um, the role of the uh, uh, Edward and uh, uh, Duncan Cameron, the people that were crew members on the ship, and mm -hmm. the reason why they weren't uh, embedded into the bulkhead, we'll discuss why. And we're gonna also talk about the connection between the Philadelphia experiment in 1943 and the Montauk project in 1983 and how they are directly related and why the Montauk project 40 years in the future actually caused the problems with the Philadelphia experiment. And we'll talk about that in detail. And lastly, one of the things we'll talk about is the role of Ian Fleming, the James Bond creator. The British intelligence agent in World War II, and a very creative one, by the way. People don't know that about him. But um, 
he was involved with the uh, research of the Philadelphia experiment and he was murdered by the deep state. And you know what the date of his death was? August 12th, 1964, the 21st anniversary of the Philadelphia experiment. By the way, he was investigating the Philadelphia experiment, which the deep state didn't like. He was also investigating the Kennedy assassination, which occurred the year before. So you can see why a lot of people with nice thick Coke bottle glasses in the Pentagon and other places, and maybe in Londinium, uh, wouldn't like that. Okay, uh -huh. so um, so that's where, we're, especially the United States, uh, more so than England. Uh, so that, that, that's going to be background. So let me give you a, let's go into a little bit of background because your okay. listeners, they may have heard of it and they may have seen the 1988 HBO film, which is very nicely done, by the way, um, right. even though Hollywood got involved with Hollywoodization. But a lot of the facts were were, were mentioned very nicely and depicted. It is a fun movie. I, I recommend it. It was like, you know, uh, I don't know what, 30 years ago plus, but 34 years ago, but it's a good uh, look. See, okay, so just prior to sunrise on August 12th, 1943, the USS Eldridge uh, with its four massive generators, uh, specially prepared for the experiment with copper coil, as we'll talk about in a moment, was turned on to full power and a strong electromagnetic field engulfed the ship. Uh, now, some people report that a bright flash of light piercing sound were heard, all kinds of things that were going on. And this ship had apparently been magnetically pulled through time and space, as we'll see through many future experiences. Now, other people describe it as a murky green fog surrounded the ship and it disappeared off the radar. Uh, it, it teleported to Norfolk, Virginia, 250 miles away, and then arrived back 10 minutes earlier than before it left. You understand the time travel aspect right, here? Right, so we right, got right. some heavy stuff. The crew suffered from burns. Some were fused into the deck, as you just so nicely described, uh, at the molecular level and died. Uh, there was a second Eldridge. People will say, well, there was an Eldridge in Brooklyn, New York. And that's true. Mm -hmm. The problem was that was a second ship that was organized by a uh, uh, von Neumann, who was in charge of the thing after they got rid of Tesla. And you'll see why they got rid of him. Uh, but um, yes, there was a, an Eldridge in Brooklyn in the Naval Yard. Yes, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the one in, in, in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, okay. So now, of course, the typical state involvement when they explain this, they say, well, there was an experiment going on, but that was for degassing which is a way to avoid mine detection during World War II. And that's true, but that wasn't the main purpose. That was the line that you give to the public when you ask them what's going on. Now, these four large coils of uh, copper tubing were used on the deck and antenna such a, to such a way that it could generate this magnetic field. Now, let me tell you something very interesting. Here's my corroboration. When I was a teenager, when I was a, a young sprout in New York City, I used to collect pennies. Mm -hmm. One of my hobbies, I was a newsmatic person, okay? I collected pennies, and we're talking about the early 60s. Now, when I would collect pennies from the 1940s, what I found out, which was very surprising, is that in 1943, remember the Eldridge, okay? Mm -hmm. There were no copper pennies. You see, people say, well, I mentioned this on the, I say, oh, doctor, there was a war going on. People, uh, women couldn't have their hose. You know, they were using it to make parachutes. I said, that's interesting, except in 1941, 1942, 1944, and 1945, there were copper pennies. Just mm -hmm. not in 1943. Okay, so now uh, we're going to deal with two of the crew members here, Duncan and Edward Cameron. Now, when I'm when I'm describing the Philadelphia experiment, I'm giving you, as we say in New York, the two cents plain version. This this case is extremely complicated, and it would entail a five hour episode to discuss it. So I'm going to eliminate a lot of the Morris Jessup and all the other stuff because it just gets way too complicated right. and you can confuse everyone. They're not going to remember the names and, you know, they can, they can go online and check it out. I want to give you the gist here because the gist is more important actually. So people out there, if you're going to email me or text me or contact me, don't complain. Okay. I'm doing, I'm doing something for an hour interview. All right. So um, Duncan and Edward Cameron, uh, they were on the ship but they were in the hull of the ship. They weren't on the surface. So they did not suffer the trauma when this happened 
because they had been shielded in the generator room, which was surrounded by steel bulkheads. That would prevent them from getting uh, embedded into the hull of the ship. The steel acted as a, as a shield, and as they witnessed things falling apart, they tried to shut off the generator and transceivers, but were unsuccessful. And the reason why they were unsuccessful was because it was being controlled 40 years in the future by the Montauk project, which we'll get into. So just keep that in mind, okay? And keep the date August 12th in mind. Very important date, not just for Ian Fleming's death, but for the whole Philadelphia experiment. Now, uh, at the same time, another experiment was going on 40 years later at the Montauk Project that revealed uh, that the Earth, like humans, have a biorhythm. And the biorhythm peak out every 20 years on August 12th. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Uh, this coincided with, uh, coincided with the 1983 experiment and provided additional function connecting the links between the Earth's field for the Eldridge to be pulled into hyperspace. So in other words, the entire ship, you have to imagine what a ship looks like, a military ship. Think of a cruise ship. Good analogy, okay? About the same size, depending on which cruise line you take. Uh -huh. How about the entire ship being sucked into the fifth dimension? That's what we're talking about. They call that hyperspace. That's the old classification, but they would use that in the 1940s. So um, during the initial stages of the experiment, Duncan and Edward realized something was going amiss here. So they tried to shut down the generator and they couldn't. So they decided there was nothing left for them to do. So what they did was abandon ship. They jumped ship thinking they would go into the ocean, you know, to Atlantic Ocean and be saved, except they never hit the water. What happened was they jumped over the ship and into hyperspace and were taken into the future. We'll go into the future in a few moments. Let me just correlate this. Um, the sensation they reported was very much like falling down an elevator shaft that has no bottom because they were in hyperspace. Okay, so um, now uh, at the same time, the, um, uh, they arrived. Now, when they arrived, okay, they were in hyperspace, but what happened? They eventually landed back on Earth, but they landed in Montauk Project on Long Island, Montauk Point, if you know Long Island geography. I'm from Long Island, so I can tell you that. Um, where Dr. Von Neumann at that time was the head of the project. Now, Nikola Tesla was originally the head of the project, but he tried to sabotage it a year earlier in 1942 because he realized this would be too dangerous to the men. He knew what would happen. He didn't know exactly what would happen, but he knew there was going to be mucho problems here. And Von Neumann uh, was replaced, replaced him because... Uh, Tesla wouldn't cooperate. And again, he tried to sabotage the project because he was thinking about the 281 crew members on the ship, not Von Neumann's reputation or the mm -hmm. government's reputation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the Montauk project needs to be discussed too because it created a vortex for time travel. Uh, uh, Von Neumann, when they arrived in, in 1943, uh, 1983 in, in Montauk Point, he realized there was a major problem here. You're talking about a major problem in the space-time continuum. This could cause the end of everything. So what he did was he decided to send the brothers, Duncan and Edward Cameron, back through hyperspace, through this vortex they created, and to go back to the generator and to shut it off. Because they can control it from 1983. And that's what they did. And it worked, but not completely. Instead of 281 crew members dying, uh, minus the ones that were in the bulkhead, maybe a few others than the Camerons, uh, of, uh, they, uh, there was maybe about a dozen or so, the ones that were embedded into the... So anyway, sending them back in time saved the lives of about 270 uh, crew members. And, and that was good. Okay, So again, Von Neumann had to do that because if he didn't, they would be held to pay. The government, the Pentagon would know all about this and Department of Defense and they wouldn't make a monument for him, okay? So they were worried about the crew members, okay? Remember, the American military is the best military in the world, and one of the things is no man left behind. If somebody is injured in battle or killed, they get the body, okay? The uh, Russians don't agree with that, if you mm -hmm. follow the Ukraine war, but the Americans, we always do, and so does the Western countries in general. Okay, so now let's go back to um, uh, Project Rainbow is the USS Eldridge. Now, uh, the um, Tesla, uh, let's go back to Tesla. So Tesla was appointed originally as the head. It was his intention to turn the battleship invisible. He knew how to do it, okay? 
But he also did the ramifications. He had to figure on what are the side effects. So he deliberately sabotaged the project in January of 1942. And he decided that they were not yet ready for this dangerous experiment. We needed more technology and the government didn't agree with them. At this point, Tesla was replaced by von Neumann, Dr. John von Neumann. Tesla had designed an analog system for invisibility, okay. right? Von Neumann replaced it with a digital post system. And obviously that didn't work real well, okay? Not for the crew members. The digital pulse system was later to be used in Montour's experiments, which were very vicious and the Montour project was canceled and they destroyed the whole area, filled it up with concrete. We'll get into that. So it didn't have a happy ending. This reminds me of Tesla's war with Thomas Edison with direct current versus alternating current. Edison was the big cheese in those days in the 1890s, give or take, when Tesla worked for him. And he was very narrow-minded and stubborn and egomaniac. And he didn't like Tesla because Tesla was smarter than him. And Tesla developed alternating current, which is what we're using today. Okay, so, so you understand how Tesla had fights with people and he was always right. One cute analogy of this is that uh, Einstein was asked in the early 50s, prior to his death, Reporter asked him, Dr. Einstein, what's it like to be the smartest man in the world? So Einstein looked at him and said, I don't know. Why don't you ask Nikola Tesla? <laughs> Even he was humble enough to admit that. Okay. So um, we talk about the final test in August 12th of 1943 was an utter disaster to the ship and crew. Um, I mentioned there was a sudden blue flash of light. The ship disappeared. And we talked about what happened to the uh, uh, hyperspace uh, transmission of the, of the Cameron brothers. Now, uh, back in 1943, uh, after the Cameron, after they left and before they were sent back again, right. there was a boarding by the Navy. Of course, the Navy is going to have their military, their intelligence, their police, whatever you want to call them. They would um, board the ship to see what was going on because they knew there was a real problem. Okay, they found two sailors buried in the steel deck, their bodies fused with the steel hull. Two more buried in the upright steel bulkhead, again, fused with, with the steel bulkhead. Uh, the sailors who were on deck were out of it and insane. In other words, they couldn't deal with it. So there was a lot of mental issues going on. Um, and uh, the ship was fading in and out of visibility, which is very nicely depicted during the HBO movie, by the way. Their special effects was quite well, even though it was, you know, 34 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and again, the ones that were below the deck, which weren't that many, because of the steel shielding by the steel, they were okay. So basically, that was the, the gist of the beginning part of the uh, Montauk project and the Philadelphia experiment. So let's talk a little bit about, well, let me just define what the gassing is. Uh, this is a way to um, uh, protect the ship from mining. So the technical definition is the Navy defines the gassing as a process in which a system of electrical cables are installed around the circumference of the ship's hull uh, running from bow to stern on both sides, a measured electrical current is passed through these cables to cancel out the ship's magnetic field. The gassing uh, experiment was installed in the hull of Navy ships and could be turned on whenever the ship uh, was in waters that might contain magnetic mines. Okay, that's fine, except you don't need all the coil, all the copper in the United States to do this, okay? Mm -hmm. You can do this by regular generators and electrical cables, not with copper generated uh, generators. So that's one of the issues here. Okay, so um, now what, another thing that's important about this is that um, uh, six days before the final test of the Eldridge, three UFOs appeared to hover over the ship in Philadelphia. Now that's not reported very often, but that's true. So why is that significant? One of the brilliant... Um, uh, nuclear physicist by the name of Stan Friedman, who was a UFO investigator. I'm sure you've heard of him as well, many of your audience. He's also a good friend of George Norrie. Um, he had speculated that the reason that the alien intelligence may have been attracted to the Philadelphia experiment might be because of large concentrations of electromagnetic, what they call oversplash, produced by the experiment itself. Professor Friedman, who has personally investigated a number of these cases in which UFOs reportedly appeared in uninvited responses to electromagnetic experimentation, theorized that if aliens are observing our world, which they are, uh, they would be likely to function, to have a functional electromagnetic map. In mm -hmm. other words, 
and then bright spots would appear where there was a surge of energy, which we do today. We can do that today. Think right. of, with night goggles, they can see, you know, organic matter, you know, and that's a small example of that, but we do that today. So uh, it's not an issue. Uh, and, and of course, do, do you not think that uh, uh, extraterrestrials maybe millions of years ahead of us in technology and age would be able to deal with that? With their Absolutely. Of course they would. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, so getting back to the Montauk experiment now, uh, after the events of August 12, 1943, the Montauk Air Force Base was abandoned. Um, by the end of that year, there were no knowledge of anyone being on the base, although some people think that the Montauk experiment is still being carried on, but that's mm -hmm. another issue. Uh, in May or June of 1984, a crack squad of Black Berets, now this is the stormtroopers, okay, uh, were sent to the base. Uh, they uh, were supposedly, they were ordered to shoot anything that moved, okay, so much for democracy. Their purpose was to purge anyone who might be on the base and have any knowledge of the Montauk project. Uh, there was a second team that followed the Black Berets. They removed secret equipment, which was considered too sensitive to leave behind uh, and to prepare the underground to be sealed. They used cement mixtures and they filled the vast underground areas of Montauk with a lot of cement. The ancient Romans would have been proud of them, okay? Mm -hmm. They used a lot of cement to seal off the base and you can't go to that base. First of all, it's still considered to be security oriented, but even if you got in there somehow, you wouldn't go anywhere because there's nothing but cement. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the future time uh, incidents as the Montauk uh, USL soldiers went to. Now, um, the first, uh, well, the first trip, so to speak, uh, that the Camerons were involved with was in the year 2137, where they were, they came off the ship and they were treated for radiation burns, came, went back on the ship, and then they went to the year 2749, where they observed anti-gravity technology, future cities floating above the earth, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then they also went to the Great Salt Lake in Utah in the year 2043, and they had another experience uh, of the elders did in the Imperial Reservoir in California in the year 2005 and Sabago Lake in Maine in the year 3543. Wow. So that was uh, the uh, travel. Now, there was another thing that doesn't get reported, except I did my research on this and I've never known anyone else to report this. So I'm going to give you a scoop here. Uh, back in Philadelphia, in July of 1904, now look at the numbers here. That's 39 years before the Eldridge. Right. A ship called the Mohegan reported experiencing an unusual gray cloud that appeared to attach itself to its hull and created unexplainable electrical effects, such as uncontrollable spinning of the compass needles and the magnetization of the metal objects on board. It almost sounds like the Bermuda Triangle. It does. I was just thinking that, yeah. Right. And remember when I said there was a gray mist over the Eldridge that had been reported by some people. A series of violent electrical storms were noted in Philadelphia at the very time that these strange lights moving around the city. Some reports cited, and this is interesting, a strange ship in the Atlantic, not far from the location of the USS Eldridge in 1943. So here's my theory about this. Maybe the USS Eldridge went back 39 years in time to 1904. Remember, 40 years is this key right. thing. What's a year between friends? And was able to be back and materialize for a short period of time in the Atlantic Ocean, Philadelphia Harbor, where mm -hmm. it was right next to the Mohegan or not far from it and was observed by many people. You understand in 1904, 1904 no reporter in his right mind is going to report this. Right. They would be institutionalized, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's why we know about this because there were some minor reports, but the big papers, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, New York Times, and the Washington, no, they're not gonna do this, okay? Uh, if they even need considered, they would have probably made a paper airplane out of the report. So it was reported, that's how we know about it because there were some little, little like weekly, uh, little throwaway kind of papers or some other reports that were documented, okay? But again, it didn't get much attention. So uh, that was the, uh, the mentality of the uh, Philadelphia experiment time travel. Now, we have to deal with um, good old Ian Fleming. Now, 
Ian Fleming during World War II was a very astute, competent, brilliant British intelligent agent. He came up with a lot of plans and plots. You don't hear about this. They just talk about James Bond. Uh, when he created James Bond, of course, he used his own experience. So a lot of the things he talked about, like when he talked about Schmirsch in the old novels, I read all the novels. Schmirsch was around between 1943 and 1946. It was a Russian KGB pre, pre, uh, uh, you know, preliminary, KGB following it, etc. Well, uh, of course, his novels talk about Smirsch, but Smirsch didn't exist after 1946. But mm -hmm. Fleming knew a lot about intelligence work. He was brilliant. He was also a brilliant researcher. Okay. Now, one of his good buddies was a, um, a man by the name of Ivan T. Sanderson, who was a biologist and another former British intelligence agent. So if you think about Ivan Sanderson, he would go on talk shows and talk about his books about biology. He was like a guest on shows in those days, like the Mike Douglas show and all these kind of shows. But he was a British intelligence agent. So you can see those two were colleagues. OK, so uh, they co corresponded uh, and they wanted to get together to discuss the information about the Rain Project Rainbow, which was the USS Eldridge and the Philadelphia experiment and how it related to their research and to compare notes and more importantly, to deal with the secret technology that the government, of course, would not release to make battleships invisible, to teleport them, okay, and ultimately on UFO technology. That was also part of their work. Well, Fleming never uh, made the rendezvous with Sanderson because he died of a heart attack. Coincidentally, on August 12, 1964, at his home in Jamaica. I do think he was murdered. Now you say, well, you have to understand Fleming. Fleming did have heart problems, but, and he was a smoker, granted, but you know something? The date is key. Right. He wasn't, a, he didn't drink a lot of alcohol. You know, he didn't use recreational drugs. He wasn't someone who was running around doing Pilates and all kinds of aerobic activity. He was an academic uh, person. He played golf. Okay. But you're not going to die of a heart attack by playing golf. Okay, unless you're playing with Goldfinger. Okay, that's my Jane Bond analogy. That's a, yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, uh, I think it's. I don't believe in coincidences. And by the way, he was also studying the Kennedy assassination. And you know who else was studying the Kennedy assassination that was killed not far from that time? Dorothy Kilgallen. Is that name ring a bell? That's right. Yep, that's right. Now, she used to be on What's My Line. She was a brilliant woman. She was absolutely astute reporter, hard-nosed reporter, brilliant. And she was um, dealing with it. And she made an announcement, kind of a thing like, I have information to expose the Kennedy assassination. Coincidentally, a couple of nights later in her apartment in New York City, she was found dead. She was in a room that she didn't have. Her, she had glasses. She had terrible vision. Her glasses were in a certain room, like the, uh, the study, whatever, but she was found dead in maybe the bedroom uh, with a book there, but no glasses. Nobody does that. Oh, you're going to read, you're going to have your glasses. And of course, there was barbiturates and alcohol. That's how they killed Marilyn Monroe, too. You know, it's not complicated. Uh, there's a certain MO here. Um, so people who investigated the Kennedy assassination did not have a uh, longevity with their life insurance policies. So I do feel that Fleming was murdered. Um, because of his work, he apparently had more information than Sanderson did about the uh, 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 Rain Project Rainbow, the U.S. Eldridge, etc. So um, that's where we stand with the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Philadelphia experiment. Now, what's interesting about this time and time travel? If there's one thing about uh, universities, there's one university that stands out is Princeton University in New Jersey. Now, why? They have, in 1933, the Institute to the Advanced Study was formed at Princeton University. Coincidentally, I don't believe in coincidence, that's when Einstein came to America. Einstein was directly involved with the Institute for Advanced Studies. Okay, so was Tesla. So was a lot of other people. Okay, but uh, Einstein, okay, remember, Einstein was also involved indirectly with the Philadelphia Experiment. Okay, now Tesla was head of the project, but he also consulted with Einstein. Okay. Einstein which just didn't want to get involved, just like Einstein didn't want to get involved with the atom bomb. He had a lot of pacifist mentality to him. Okay, so um, von Neumann, of course, was also involved with the Institute for Advanced Study. So what, what we learned here was that uh, this study deals with time travel. 
Okay, what do you think the Montauk Project was created from? The Princeton University, okay? Mm-hmm. In 1936, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton was expanded and Tesla was made the director of the group. Um, with Tesla on board, partial invisibility was achieved before the end of that year. So there's a long history here. Okay. Right. Now you can hear about that. The Department of Defense isn't going to talk about that. Princeton right. Chambers are going to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, Tesla knew about the mental state uh, of, uh, that would affect the bodies of the crew and they would be directed severely. Why? Because he did experiments. They did experiments on animals, probably rats or mice or whatever, with the invisibility. And they realized that uh, these animals were going crazy and some of them were fading in and out and some of them were being vetted into the side of the cage in which they were kept. So he knew that something was problem. So he, he wanted more time to perfect the experiment. The problem was there was World War II and the government uh, had the attention span of a squirrel. So uh, they said, no, 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 we're going to replace you with von Neumann. Now, von Neumann was a brilliant scientist. I'm not going to, and a mathematician. I'm not going to knock his academic credentials, but he did not embrace the metaphysics for his own sake, as Tesla did. And he was not a humanist, meaning that the attitude is like, whatever the state wants, the state gets. And if people die, there's a new breakfast cereal called Tough Crunchies. That was his attitude. He was a cold, ruthless son of a bitch. Okay, and Tesla was not. Tesla was a very passionate and compassionate person. And uh, Tesla's request for more time were not heeded. And um, and there's there's another conspiracy aspect here. Tesla was supposed to have died in, uh, they say, 42 or 43, uh, whatever, before the experiment. Remember, January of 42 is when they kicked him off the project. But Mm -hmm. some people think that he was whisked off to England. Okay, remember, he was like 82 at the time. Uh, and a lookalike derelict was supposed to have been placed in his place for the funeral. So um, he was cremated the day after his body was found, blah, 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 in New York City, which was not in keeping with the tradition of the Orthodox family that uh, was presented by uh, Tesla. So um, basically, there's a lot of problems here. Uh, there's a lot of problems with um, uh, why would you do that? If you have a double and you want to cremate him so there's no, because they didn't have DNA, but again, you can still look at the guy, right? I'm sure the right. double was not a perfect image of uh, Tesla, who looked really weird. If you see films of him or pictures of him, he had that kind of like, you know, sunken level kind of skeleton kind of look to him. And that would be difficult to get with a, even a derelict. Um, they, they could like get somebody close to him, but they, but they would not get an exact double, okay? Well, you cremate the person immediately. Now you've got ashes in a vase, Okay. Uh-huh. All right. And so what are you going to say? Uh, is, is this or is this not uh, Tesla? So you understand the, um, uh, the, the government does not have what they say, clean hands here. Okay. Uh, the government never has clean hands. Okay. But this one was the reason why I, I am actually very upset by the Philadelphia experiment uh-huh. is because if there's one person in history in the last hundred plus years that I have respect more than any other person, it would be Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example of why the government hated Tesla. He was brilliant, but he was compassionate. He was a humanist. He cared about people and birds. You know, he had his little pigeons on the top of the roof of the apartment building. Okay. He was eccentric. I don't care about that, but this is what I do care about. Tesla was the kind of person who, gave us more technology than anybody else. He developed radio. Marconi stole it from him. And what people don't know, because I did the research, in 1960, the United States Supreme Court reversed the copyright and gave it to Tesla and his, and his estate. So Marconi is not the inventor of radio. Now, you look at a book today, if you've got a kid in high school, who invented radio? The answer is Marconi. No, it isn't. Tesla. Okay? So uh, he was screwed out of, you know, what... Uh, Westinghouse screwed him out of money. J.P. Morgan screwed him out of money. Uh, he was a lousy businessman. Uh, he, he developed free energy, a device that was done in uh, Colorado. It was patented in 1903. You can check it out. And what J.P. Morgan said to him, he said, he said, Mr. Morgan, I got this device for free energy. So J.P. Morgan, being the ruthless robber baron, said, hey, that's great, Nicola, as long as I have the meter. Okay. So uh, uh, J.P. Morgan was not a... Uh, uh, traditionalist or 
I shouldn't say that. He wasn't an altruist here. He wanted to make money, as did everybody else in those days. That was the robber baron days, okay? Certain things haven't changed. So that's the um, Philadelphia experiment. Um, uh, the, uh, like I say, the, the 1988 movie um, is from HBO was brilliant. Uh, and um, uh, it, um, uh, and by the way, there are other things that happened here. The, um, the, uh, the develop of transistors for radio uh, mm-hmm. and dealing with um, all these technologies that we use today for our electronic technology, radio and television. Most of this stuff came out of Princeton and came out of Tesla's work. Remember, Tesla developed radio, okay? Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why the government would be afraid of Tesla, even though he would not do this, Tesla dealt with sound, okay? Now, yes, he had a cordless electricity, wireless electricity. You know, the uh, if you go to any kind of uh, planetarium, you can see the little things they use on Frankenstein movies, you know, that Tesla coil. All right, but this is what Tesla do. He knew sound was very relevant. And sound could be used for negative things, too. Now, this is what Tesla could do. He wouldn't do it, but the government didn't trust him. He could take a device the size of a transistor radio, maybe four inches high, three inches wide. He could manipulate it. He could take that device, put that on the side of the Empire State Building, and bring it down by using sound waves. Okay? That's what his technology could do. Now, would he do that? No. But the government said, well, he can, so maybe we should get rid of him, okay? So that's what we're dealing with here. You're dealing with selling your soul to the devil. Tesla wouldn't do that. He was, uh, he was for, for uh, compassionate for people, but he still had the brilliant mind. And uh, by the way, his notebooks and most of his uh, uh, research was confiscated after he died. They, we don't know whether they stole it somewhere. Maybe they put it in the Vatican's basement for all I know, but nobody can get to it. Including the family, of course, wanted it. They wanted it for their, you know, for their relative. Uh, no, it was they, it was destroyed or it was confiscated. I suspect it was confiscated and probably taken to some, you know, like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you have that warehouse where they put the Ark of the Covenant. You know, yeah, stuck up there. those little boxes, you know. So, um, so that's the uh, that's the gist here of the Philadelphia experiment. So again, uh, I'm making this rather simple. I don't want right. to discuss the details of. Of Preston Nichols and right, um, right. and Jessup and all the other people because it gets really complicated and a lot of the stuff gets really creepy. Uh, what I can tell you though is that the um, Montour project did have the chair is what it's known as and the chair was a actual chair in Montauk where you sat in there and they could expand your psychic development to such an extent. Now this gets heavy. You can create a being of energy. And that's what happened. And that's why the Montauk project was canceled because they created literally a monster that killed most of the people on the base. It reminds me, even though this is supposedly a true story, it reminds me of the movie Forbidden Planet, 1959. If you remember that great film where they went to this planet where everybody was destroyed because they used techniques to do it. Um, I don't think that was just a coincidence. Again, I don't believe in coincidence, but the Montauk Project was very dangerous. They really created dangerous aspects here. Uh, and they were also there was also a lot of other things going on with children. It, there was a lot of sick things going on that you don't want to know about. Right, and right. the government realized that was like over the top. So the Montauk Project did have its problem. Whether it's still going on right now, right? I don't know. It's not going on in Montauk, uh, but they could have taken anywhere else uh, to do it. So, so that's the gist of the Philadelphia experiment. It doesn't get a lot of attention. Yes, there have been books written about it, Berlitz and a few others, you know, gotcha, okay. Um, but um, it is something that uh, it's very difficult because people don't understand it. You have to understand quantum physics, astrophysics, and hyperspace physics, and in order to explain some of the technology involved. And a lot of people don't have the background to do it, mm-hmm. nor do they want to pay the attention because they can't answer questions. Right. Now, I have a question for you. In the beginning of the interview, you talked about uh, the, that fifth dimension, that when we meditate, that's where we go. Could you explain that fifth okay. dimension? Yeah, let me, let me explain. the. Uh, right. We're dealing with brain waves and we're dealing with dimensions. Now, okay. we live on the earth plane. This is the physical dimension. Length, width, and depth, or breadth. Beyond uh, the, f- the third dimension is what's, what we call the fourth dimension. Now, look, for your listeners and viewers out there, 
never use the term four de- fourth density to me because that tells me you don't know what you're doing. The fourth dimension is physicists use that as time. It's for the mathematical equations. There's no such thing as the fourth density. So 4D is irrelevant. It may work on computers, but it's not real. Okay. Yeah. Now, beyond time, anything beyond time is the fifth dimension. Technically, if you deal with the string theory, there are 26 dimensions. Okay. I don't want to bore people. I, I lose my attention after about 10, you know. But so I'm going to use the term fifth dimension to include all the ones beyond time. Okay. So in the fifth dimension, people have heard of the astral plane, for example, when you have out of body experiences. There's the causal, mental, etheric, and soul plane, not to get too complicated, but there are other dimensions. So when you go to sleep at night, We know from research going back 70 years from Chicago State University that there are four brainwaves. When you're sleeping and you're unconscious or in a very deep meditative level, you have the theta wave and you have the delta wave where you're almost flatlining. But during the waking day, the alpha and beta waves dominate. So right now, as I'm talking to you, your ego defense mechanisms are dominating. And those are what we call the beta waves. Beneath that is the subconscious or the soul, which is alpha brainwaves, okay? Now, when you go to sleep at night, the, uh, this is a little bit of neurology to keep it simple. This is my medical background here. Uh, you go through a five-stage sleep cycle, okay? You go through your, you start off with your beta waves, you fall asleep, you go into alpha and then theta and then delta, and then you go back into alpha for stage five. Now, that is the REM cycle. The rapid eye movement, we get this from dream laboratory research. And when you're in the alpha level, two things are occurring. Number one, you're dreaming. That's why we call it the REM cycle. More importantly, your soul is now left the physical body, occupying occupying a spiritual body. Let's say, for example, the astral body for the astral plane. And now you're in hyperspace. You're in the fifth dimension. You are now an ultra terrestrial. So every you and every one of your viewers and listeners out there, whether you like it or not, every night, and we know you go through three hours of dreams every night. We know that from sleep laboratory research over the last 70 years. You're out of the body for three hours every night. You don't remember it, but sometimes you had weird dreams. Some of those dreams are sneak previews of past lives or future lives. Some of those dreams are of teleportation and time travel. Here's an example. I'll bet you, you and every one of your listeners and viewers has at one time in their life, if not many, had dreams of flying, right? Absolutely. Now, what what is the dream of flying? That's when the soul is leaving the earth plane, going into the astral body, and now entering into the fifth dimension, hopefully to meet with your higher self. That's what I use with my therapy for energy healing. Now, there are times when you have another kind of dream. I've had these very infrequent, and, and most people can't relate to it. But you have a dream where you're flying or you're just like you're in a black hole, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you're falling. You can hear a pin drop. There's no sound, and you don't splat. And before, just about when you're going to end the hit the bottom of that black hole, you wake up. Have you ever had a dream like that? Yes. Okay. Again, it's statistically, most people can't relate to that. Maybe 10%, 20%. I have had that many times. So what is that? That is the soul's energy, the alpha brainwave coming back from the fifth dimension into the earth plane, the third dimension, and re-entering the physical body. One of the examples of when things go haywire, one of the explanations of what we call spontaneous human combustion, have you ever heard of that? I have. Okay, for for the benefit of the audience, spontaneous human combustion, pretty much like it sounds, is when somebody is sitting in a chair and they're just reading a book or watching TV or listening to the California Horns radio, and all of a sudden, 2,000 degrees worth of fire engulfs the body. Usually one or two of their limbs are separated. The apartment that they're in or their house is not burnt to the crisp, as you would think, just the body. And sometimes people are walking along the street. There's a case in Chicago where a policeman on a very hot day in July was just walking along Michigan Avenue, a main thoroughfare in Chicago, if you've ever been there. And um, a woman was in front of him by about 30, 40 yards. And he's just walking along on the speed and she goes into flames immediately and dies. Now, one of the there's a lot of explanations. Most of them are ridiculous. Okay, trust me. uh, I I love when firemen try to uh, debate with me about spontaneous human combustion. One of the theories we can't prove, but it does sound logical, is infrequently when the soul is re-entering the physical body, 
it's off kilter, out of sync. And that supposedly causes the actual spontaneous human combustion. But spontaneous human combustion has been around for a long time. It's even reported by Charles Dickens in one of his novels, okay? If you do the history research, which I have, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to the Renaissance, way back to ancient times. So this is not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, this is all really interesting to me in that, you know, because uh, I do practice meditation. Well, then That's you're doing an alpha brainwave technique. See, the difference between meditation and hypnosis is merely semantics and technique. When you're okay. doing meditation, your purpose is to enter a samadhi state, to be relaxed and to channel into the universe, whatever you're, hopefully to get your higher self or some mm -hmm. spirit guide. That's fine. But in, in hypnosis, it's the same thing, except we're connecting with the higher self. It's more specific. It's more detailed. It's more um, like suggestions are more organized. In meditation, you're just trying to clear your mind of thoughts and be one with the universe. I find that that's nice. But to me, I'm a New Yorker. I like things done yesterday. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to me, hypnosis is very specific. If I want to contact my higher self to explore a past life or to raise my soul's energy or to go into the future or to develop techniques for teleportation, which I do, by the way, uh, then I want to do it uh, quickly. By the way, for the benefit of your of your listeners and viewers, if they go to my website, I hope you're linking it to your uh, page. I will, absolutely. Uh, there are many CDs that are on there to guide people into self-hypnosis. All of them have spiritual protection techniques. All my 21 books are listed, and they can go out of the body. They can go into the fifth dimension. They can teleport. They can do past and future life experiences, uh, do energy healing, all the things that I discuss, and even meet time travelers. There's a, uh, there's a time traveler training program as one example of an album that will actually train you to enter the fifth dimension to actually meet time travelers. I've met them myself. So have many of my patients, and I report them in my Time Travels from Our Future book, as well as my uh, Egypt book, too, to show you that people can do that. So you, I believe in training people to be empowered, not to be codependent upon me, but to be able to do this yourself. So meditation, yoga, biofeedback, these are all alpha brain techniques, just like hypnosis. The only difference is the technique and what you want to call it semantically. Is it easy to learn how to time travel or, 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 or does it take a while to learn how to do this? Well, it, it is easy because you do it every night when you're out of the body. See, when you enter the fifth dimension, you are now into the what I call the uh, uh, the the, uh, the spectrum of past, present and future are all simultaneous. You're in the space time continuum. So let me give you an analogy to show you how this works. Sure. Let's say you were driving in a car on the freeway. OK, and there's a car five miles behind you where you came from and another car five miles ahead of you where you're going to. So we'll call you the present. The car in the back are, is the past and the car that you're going to or the area is the future. You can't see five miles behind you or in front of you on the freeway. But if you were in one of those nice little radio helicopter reports, you know, where they travel a couple of hundred feet above the freeway, so they could see your past, present, and future simultaneously. And if each of you had a cell phone, you could communicate. So when, I, when you do an out-of-body experience, which is a dream, as an example, um, you are actually entering the freeway of life. You can perceive past, present, and future times. So every night when you're out of the body, you actually are doing time travel. Now, the difference is you're not going to remember it for the most part. So my techniques uh, are designed specifically to have people to be able to remember it. And when I do, when I I'll give you an example, when I wrote my time travels book, it's the, it's the first books and only books on real time travels. I can tell you, I do the research and I'm very, very familiar with the field. So uh, people say, where'd you get the information from? Before I documented this by going on radio or writing any articles or writing my books, I got that from information from people all over the world. They had no way of corroborating their information. They didn't know each other. There was nothing written about it because I began this field. Okay. So how did I get the information? People are reporting the same thing over and over again, exact names of time travelers, exact dates of what century they were from. And then, of course, I documented so now people can read my books, but still, in the beginning, they couldn't. So that gives what we call suggestive evidence in science that we're dealing with reality, not some fantasy of, of a bunch of people that just want to get their names out there. So that's where uh, I, I, I always corroborate my material. Just like the movie, The Search for Grace, based on my second book, CBS corroborated. It's a, it's an, it was one of the most documented cases in the last century. Again, it doesn't prove reincarnation. It gives suggestive evidence. 
Interesting. Now, let me ask you this. Someone who has um, had a case of, of, of lost time or maybe they end up like 100 miles down the road. And I'm not talking about alien abduction. I'm just talking about, say, say a random act like this. Could that be the, that somehow they, they, they went through a, a break in time to go to the fifth dimension? That's an example of teleportation, actually. Okay. So okay. what happens now, of course, you can blank out and have an out-of-body experience. Let's say you mm-hmm. were a passenger in a car, so you're not going to crash the car. And right. let's say you were a passenger car and you went out of the body, you did a meditative or hypnotic experience, you would lose time. If I'm working with a patient for two hours, they think 30 minutes went by. You get time distortion over time, as you do in meditation. But you're talking about what is well-documented, not only with my patients, and I've done this myself, as well as many people around the world, you're talking about there's very famous cases in England and Argentina for some reason. Argentina is a biggie here where people are driving down the road um, and now all of a sudden they black out. Sometimes there's a fog over the car. Isn't that interesting? And they wake up or they come out of it and they're 150 miles away and they watch those that only 10 minutes went by. You can't travel 150 miles in 10 minutes unless yeah, no you're Luke Skywalker, okay? <laughs> so um, the, the point is, is that those are teleportation. Very well documented. There's a famous case. I'll give you the most famous case of teleportation okay. that any skeptic can have a field day. Bring Make, make my day, okay, to try to explain this. So a gentleman in um, Mexico City in 1593, all of a sudden out of nowhere, appeared in the Mexico City Plaza. Okay, Mexico City being the capital of Mexico. Now we're talking about 1593. Spain owned Mexico as a colony, okay. right? The man was dressed in a uh, the, 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 his military outfit, but his uniform and his gun was that of the Philippine army, not the Mexican army. They looked totally different, all right? So they figured like, what's going on here? He was approached by the police because he didn't know what's going on. And he said, oh, I, I'm very nervous. He goes, oh, I tried to save the governor, but he was murdered and I couldn't help it. So please don't, don't blame me. And they said, what are you talking about? He said, the governor of Manila was murdered. Now this is 1593, October 23rd. So they arrested him, put him in jail and thought he was loco. They'd had the priest do an exorcism on him. So he's not only documented by the historians at the time, but he's also documented by the Catholic church. Okay, you got that? All right, so now two months later, a ship from Manila, because Spain owned the Philippines at the time, and they would send their ship around the world to check on their colonies, right? Just like you would do. That's what they did in those days. So it takes two months for the ship to go from Manila, which is 9,000 miles away, to Mexico City, all right? The ship arrives, and uh, the guy goes in there, and he goes up to the office, whether they check in, and they said, oh, by the way, we're going to bring you some news, because that's what they do. They would bring the news, because there wasn't CNN on those days, right? Right. And they said, guess what? The governor of Manila was murdered. And they said, well, when was that? And it was said it was uh, October 23rd, uh, you know, just a couple months ago, because this was around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So they said, we have somebody in our jail that we would like to uh, you to visit. And they bring him here, and he says, that's Perez. He was one of our soldiers that was guarding the governor. How do you get from Manila, Philippines, 9,000 miles away? And by the way, he teleported backwards in time by 12 hours because the governor was killed in the morning and he arrived like at 9 o'clock in the evening, okay? Remember about the Philadelphia experiment that arrived 10 minutes before they started? So here's the most documented example by the – this is 500 years old, 400 plus, documented by the historians and documented by the Catholic Church. So you want to you want to go to the Vatican to argue it if you want to argue it. Okay. So that's the, that's the most exotic example and most well documented example of teleportation. It's real and it's been around forever. Now, in the old days, if you do your research, a lot of religious figures would teleport. There's many examples during the Renaissance and other times where you had like these friars and monks, etc. But there are real non-religious people that have also teleported. And Europe has a lot of cases, and I report those in my time travels from our future book. So if they want to read about that, and you can go online, you'll see there are podcasts on them, and there are a lot of documentation to real examples of teleportation. This is just so interesting to me, you know, and it's just too bad that we don't have a lot more time to talk about this stuff because we could just go down that rabbit hole, you know. Well, we can um, do the fifth dimension. All time is simultaneous. So, you know, we can be in the space time continuum. Now, this right. is a fascinating topic, and I appreciate your interest here. Uh, and um, by the way, for your audience, if anybody, if they uh, email me or contact me, 
I'm the only one that receives my emails and I answer all emails as well as any phone call. So uh, I keep this very personal one-on-one and, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't have a staff of a zillion people that will just blow you off here. I do believe in communication. Absolutely. And by the way, for the benefit of the audience too, if they want to experience my therapy, my website gives you all the information. I do almost all my sessions by Zoom. So uh, I can do uh, all, almost all my sessions can be done by computer. I can do FaceTime. I can do Skype. I can do whatever video that's around. Usually I do Zoom. It's the best signal. Um, but um, so uh, they can actually not have to come to Los Angeles where I am to experience the therapy. So what's next for you? Well, what's next for me is uh, continuing my work. Uh, and uh, doing my uh, uh, my interviews. I'm a public speaker, so I have a lot of topics. Oh, by the way, I do a monthly webinar the second Sunday of the month. This Sunday, I'll be doing a webinar on the Kabbalah and Ascension techniques. Oh, and I, do, I do different metaphysical techniques every month, the second Sunday of the month. All that's promoted on my, on, my, on my website. So I do a lot more work with public speaking and with research and with podcasts uh, to get the message out. Absolutely. I would love to have you back on to talk about time travel and teleportation. Well, sure. We can talk about past life regression. We can talk about absolutely our future, I think would be the best topic, actually. If you're, if you're I, willing to come back on. Yeah, on that, deals with, that, that deals with future life progression because we're talking about time travelers right. from the 30th to the 50th century. So right. we'll have a lot of data about technology from the future. And uh, we can discuss that, too. That would be great. Thank you so much. Much. I learned so much tonight. I mean, there's stuff that I, I'd never heard of before. With, with, with one, one last thing I want for the benefit of your audience, I want to give them a, um, you might say, an offer. Uh, my book, Exploring the Fifth Dimension, which is my most recent book, if they order it from my site, not from a bookstore, but directly from my site, uh, I will give them a free CD titled Fifth Dimensional Travel, which will train them into going into the fifth dimension. But they must mention the show and the offer. And okay. you won't get this on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any other bookstore just directly from my website. Okay, fair enough. Again, thank you so much, Doctor. And uh, I'll be in touch if that's okay. I would love to have well, you on again a future yes. date and talk more about this stuff because I'm absolutely in the fifth dimension. Me casa su casa. Sounds good, sir. All right, you have a good rest evening and a good holiday. Thank you, you so much. All bye right. Bye bye bye, sir. Wow. That was a big wow. And I learned so much. Oh my gosh. I, I hope we can get him back on to talk about other stuff. I have nothing to say. <laughs> I'm speechless after that. I mean, there's stuff I learned. I know like, I, like in the beginning of the show, I talked about my father's experience talking with probably one of the sailors that had been below decks, you know, on, on, on that ship. And uh, wow. Anyway, tomorrow we're going to shift gears. You guys know I'm a journalist. I like to shift gears. I took care of my mother. For 10 years, my mother had dementia. And uh, this, this, my guest tomorrow is someone near and dear to my heart. His name is Dr. Stephen Post, and he has done studies on Alzheimer's and dementia patients. And he's got some really cool, cutting edge info on how to, you know, if you're taking care of somebody with, with those, you know, with, with that, how to take care of them a little better. And I think you're going you're gonna to find it interesting. You know, tonight, if you're watching from Facebook, and I forgot to do this in the beginning because I was so excited to have him come on, but if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see and you like what you see saw tonight, please hit that like and follow button. You know, we're always looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube and, 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 and you like what you saw tonight, please um, click on that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner, and a little thing will pop up that says subscribe, and that will subscribe you to the YouTube channel. We've got more than 450 videos over there different topics like like i said you know tomorrow we're going to be doing medical stuff i like to vary it and i think there's a little something in there for everybody so if you're interested in any of that that'd be great because we are looking for followers we're looking for subscribers anyway i want to thank you all for coming uh you can find us all over facebook you can also find me on on uh, instagram at ghosty gal all lowercase you can also find us on tiktok and we're under california haunts all lowercase on tiktok but I want to thank, again, thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, I just love doing these shows. And, and I want to thank each and every one of you that's been following us from the beginning. It's been three years in this format, 15 years in the other format that we did. You know, I just want to thank everyone, even the, you know, the podcast audience, everybody. Um, so I'm going to let you guys go. I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I'm also going to give you the uh, doctor's information on his website and where you can check his stuff out. Yeah, like he says, order his book on the website, 
get that CD, learn how to time travel. Wouldn't that be cool? To see what the future lies. To see what lies what the future lies. To see what lies the future. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing tonight. Anyway, here we go, and I'll uh, get his information up. So I've got like four of his books here. He's got so many books. Listing them it would be incredible on here, but I decided to list at least four of his books. So here we go. So the website is drbrucegoldberg.com. And a couple some of the books are Time Travelers from Our Future, Egypt. And you've got Soul Healing and Exploring the Fifth Dimension. And that's just a few of his many books that he has. Best I can tell you is to check out his website or check out Amazon. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys go and have a good evening. And I'll see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good one.